All right, quick review of the first six chapters. You start to see a little bit of redundancy in terms of the review and in terms of some of the applications that we're making. Ahasuerus was the king. Sometimes we refer to him as Xerxes, and Brother Jonathan will be talking about Artaxerxes in the next few weeks. And so Xerxes, the father of Artaxerxes, was a very prideful, boastful character. Vashti was deposed. Esther is chosen as a new queen, which gave Mordecai this place of prominence to be able to act Again, part of God providing behind the scenes for all of these things to transpire. Chapter 3, we are introduced to the villain, Haman, who plans revenge for Mordecai's refusal to uh, bow down and, uh, in, in essence, worship him or at least give him the honor that he demands of everybody else. Chapter 4, we read last week. Uh, together and focused on it. Mordecai has a plan and suggests to Esther that she was there as part of God's plan. And we've said that the book of Esther uh, is void of the word God, but it certainly is making reference to God here in chapter 4, as well as the other chapters that we have studied together. Chapter 5, Haman's pride gets the best of him, gets him in trouble. And then in the twist of events we talked about in our closing 10 or 15 minutes last week, Mordecai is honored by the king and by Haman, which brings us to the end of Haman, which is chapter 7 tonight. So chapter 7 is only 10 verses. We will read a section of scripture here in just a minute. But it starts with Esther making a request. And he says, it'll be granted to you. And she says in verse 3, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I will be destroyed or to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Notice all the different words she uses. She really wants to get this message across that bad things are being planned for my people. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I, Esther says, would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So consider, if you would, again, more references to the character of Esther in that she's willing to suffer. She even goes as far as to say, you know, if we were going to be sold into slavery, I'm basically, I'm willing to do that. We are willing to endure that. But this is too much. Annihilation, uh, killed, destroyed, the three different words in the New King James, uh, where she says, I would have held my tongue. Note also, at least it seems to me worthy of note, is that both Esther and Mordecai are Jews, and now Mordecai, who is called oftentimes Mordecai the Jew, this is the first time uh, the word Jew is used in the Bible. I never knew that until just a few days ago, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Even though the Old Testament is a history of the Jewish people, here's the first time or times that the word Jew uh, is used. And of course, this is also an occasion where now, uh, Ahasuerus, the king, is going to be made known that not only are Esther and Mordecai related, but they share a common faith. And we talked about that a little bit in our first study. 
two weeks ago. Which brings us to verse 5. How do we think that the king is going to react? Well, we describe the king as kind of impetuous in our first lesson of chapters 1, 2, and 3. In the sense that someone comes and says, hey, let's destroy all the enemies of the people, whether they call them Jews or not. Brian and I were talking about that last week or the week before. And he says, that sounds like a great idea. Let's hang Haman. That sounds like a great idea. Let's go ahead and revoke the edict. That sounds like a great idea. So he's kind of, it seems to me, um, somewhat spineless in terms of his integrity as a leader Uh, which we'll talk more about the edicts later in our study tonight. So verse 5, who is he? Where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing as to destroy these people and by, uh, by virtue of destroying the people, destroy my queen? So now he's taking it personally, and the queen probably is aware of that. Esther is probably aware that he's going to sympathize more with the idea of the king being, um, or the queen being threatened as well. Um, And I like it when uh, he says, who's guilty of this? Well, obviously, Haman's the bad guy, but ultimately, who was responsible for the edict in the first place? It was a hazardous, was it not? I mean, he was the one who gave the ring to Haman and said, seal it, do what you want with it. Uh, so, you know, we talk a lot about the selfishness of a hazardous, the pride, but also the unwillingness of him to say, you know what? I've made a grave mistake. Instead, he's looking to put the blame on any, anybody else. And so Esther says, the adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And it says that Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So Haman responds with real trepidation. I mean, this is not just, I'm a little bit concerned. He is now probably more fearful than he has ever been in his life. So think about all the emotions of Haman through the story of Esther. Uh, Anger over people not bowing down to him, or at least one particular individual. Anger over the Jewish people in general, wanting them annihilated and destroyed. And now fearful in the sense that he's going to die. So what happens is the king gets angry, and then the king gets angrier as a result of all of these things transpiring. And then note what ends up happening uh, in verse uh, 8. Well, verse 7. Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that the evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden, so apparently the king goes out, maybe to kind of uh, take a breath. He says, I need some air. (laughs) This is too much. Then he comes back in, and what does he see? Verse 8, he comes back in. Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was, and the king says, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house, which in and of itself was a capital offense. So now he's in double trouble because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong position. And it looks like he's trying to assault the queen in some way. So Haman's like, no, 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 I didn't mean (laughs) You can imagine. But he doesn't have time to really protest because um, uh, he is going to be humbled. Matthew 23 is one of those places, verse 12, and other places where Jesus and the early disciples were engaging in a conversation. Matthew 23 is all the section of the woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And remember, the New Testament teaching, he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be abased or will be humbled. And so we get to choose what kind of life that we are going to live. Um, Haman is executed in the last couple of verses, and that reminded me of yet another proverb. There's probably half a dozen proverbs that we've made reference to over the course of our three weeks together. But in 22, verse 8, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. So what did he sow? He sowed iniquity. What did he reap? He reaped sorrow. Bad things happened to him. All right, let's move on then to chapter 8. Uh, in my Bible, it says, Esther saves the Jews. Uh, I call it hope for the Jews. Uh, Mordecai is given riches and is promoted by the king. So whenever the king destroys someone because he ends up uh, hanging, um, incidentally, we didn't really talk about it, but I, I always thought it was uh, interesting that Harbona, one of those little named individuals is the guy who says, look, there's gallows. Um, I can almost imagine Haman saying, would you please just keep your mouth shut about those gallows? Who would have made them 75 feet high so that everybody in the world could see them? Uh, but Harbona was the one who says, I got an idea with what we can do with him. And they hang him, of course. Uh, chapter 8. Uh, he gets the riches. Mordecai does. Um, because that seems to be somewhat customary that uh, riches, the estate, are given to whoever the hero is in the story. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting in the timeline here is that the king is making this particular choice with full knowledge of the relationship now between Esther and uh, Mordecai. And so the curtains have been pulled back. So, so much of Esther is veiled in secrecy, both herself and Mordecai and the, the background behind them. Uh, and in fact, you remember on two or three occasions, we read in the first couple chapters where Mordecai says, do not reveal your faith to the king. Do not let that be known. Keep that hidden. Now it's wide open. And the king still says, I'm going to honor Mordecai. Uh, again, kind of a, uh, a silly way of doing things, not in honoring Mordecai, but in just making decisions without thinking about the ramifications of them. Because if the king would have sat down and given this more than 10 seconds worth of thought, he would realize something that's going to be brought to his attention uh, later in the chapter. So um, Esther approaches the king again. So there's a lot in the book about Esther going before the king. And she does so uh, almost every time with the same kind of attitude. If it pleases the king, if I found favor in your sight, you are the greatest, you are wonderful, you're handsome, and now I have a request for you. Uh, this occasion, though, verse 3, she implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Verse 4, he holds out the scepter. She says, verse 5, if the thing seems right, let it be written to revoke letters that were devised by Haman, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. So Esther approaches the king, uh, and yet again, rather taking her life into, or taking her life into uh, danger, he lowers the scepter, he says, I'm not going to kill you, 
I am interested in seeing what you have to say. Um, Esther here is now putting her neck on the line, literally and uh, figuratively, uh, for not just herself, but for others. So she's really, think about the character of her. Think about the character of Mordecai. Think about the character. So you can do a lot of character study throughout the book of Esther as well and just look at it through that lens. But you get a lot about who she was in being this particular way. Um, Okay, then to the second half of chapter 8, verse 7, a new decree is written to protect the Jews. Uh, Verse 7, the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves, again, you yourselves do it. Take care of it. Do what you want. Write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. That was the same terminology that was used about edict number one. No one can revoke the edict that says that the Jews are going to be annihilated. That was Haman's edict, or we'll call it edict number one. So no one can revoke that. So I'm going to write another edict. No one's going to revoke that. And it's going to say... Uh, in verse 9, it was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews, satraps, governors, princes, uh, 127 provinces, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, verse 10, sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. Let's get this message out and let's get it out quickly. Um, and what does the edict actually provide? The the way that a, a royal monarch conducts himself is, is that he is a little g-god. And so he can't make mistakes. So it's not like he can take an eraser and say, um, my bad, we're going to erase edict number one. Once it's there, it's there. Once that ring is, is sealed on it. And I'm not sure that I've really thought about that too much before this study. You know, why couldn't he just... Reverse edict number one. Well, he can't do that because that would uh, subject himself to people saying, well, you made a mistake. It's not like in our Constitution, um, here on Sunday I said we don't talk about um, history and, and political science and stuff. Here, I'm just, just give me 30 seconds. In the Constitution, the only way to change it is to amend it. So I used to, when I was teaching, um, political science or government, I would always say, the Constitution never gets shorter. It always gets longer. So you have 27 amendments to it. So if, you, if there's an amendment you want to change, you can't just erase the amendment and go back to 26. You've got to add the 28th. The most famous example of that is the 18th and the 21st. 18th says no alcohol. 21st says alcohol. So and just easy way to remember that, uh, the idea of, of, of you cannot do that when you are a monarch and also considered deity or divine. So verse 11 rolls around, I'll put that up there. Verse 11 rolls around, and the Jews, by virtue of Edict 2, receive permission to defend themselves. We look at it and just say, well, just, <laughs> just stop, the, stop the fight in the first place. You don't have anything to fight back, but that's not the way it works. So let's look at verses 11 through 17, and we'll pick up a couple of things here. These letters the king permitted the Jews were every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy king, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Uh, 
verse 12. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, or Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Now, verse 13, the word avenge, um, you may have a different word uh, when you, if you want to write something out in the margins of your Bible, uh, a good word to think about is defend. Because this is not a war of aggression where the Jews say, let's go fight. This is a war of defense where the Jews know that edict number one is going to have a, a full-throated assault coming their way. And the king is saying, I'm granting you permission. And by granting you permission and by my wife being a Jew and by my new prime minister, if you want to call him that, being a Jew, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, go for it. Defend yourselves. Now, if people choose not to attack you, that's fine. But even though Haman is dead, this anti, I, I guess you, you call anti-Semitism, this anti-Jewishness is well played out in the kingdom and across the 127 provinces and the islands, as a reference in chapter 10, there are a lot of people that want the Jews dead. And we were, I was talking about this um, just a few minutes ago. How does all this fit into the, the story of the Bible? Well, it's clear because providence, which we've talked about every single time we come together, is making sure that God's people remain God's people and are kept well physically and spiritually because back in Genesis chapter 12, which we'll study in about six weeks, uh, mark your calendars, uh, we're going to study Genesis 12 in about five or six weeks, uh, a promise is made. When God makes a promise, does he keep the promise? Of course he does. He keeps all those three promises in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So uh, we'll make reference to that here in just a second. So compare, if you would, the rejoicing in the final verses of the chapter to the tears that started. Because, verse 17, in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews uh, had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Uh, there's a lot we could say about verse 17. Um, just a 15-second aside, is it is interesting the way that it is worded that uh, where it says many of the people of the land became Jews. Some versions said became like Jews. Um, whether that means they were proselytes or whether that means a combination of those who were proselytes as well as those who were just sympathetic to the Jews, some have... Uh, wondered exactly what that means. But it is kind of interesting. If nothing else, the influence of good, godly people is always that which can help make others better. And that's a good application for us. And the other thing is, as we mentioned, God is keeping his promise to protect and to provide for his people. All right, let's get to chapter 9 here. Chapter 9 is a long chapter. It's balanced out by chapter 10 and its three verses. Um, I call chapter 9 battle and feasting because it, the first half, the first 15 to 17 verses is this struggle and the last uh, 16 verses or so 
is the Feast of Purim, which we'll talk about. Uh, the day assigned by royal edict number one, which was Haman's idea, for the Jews' destruction was finally here. And that's about nine, so there's been about nine months time. So it's not like Haman says, we're going to destroy the Jews, and then next week all the Jews are like, wait a minute, what's happening? Uh, because word had to get out. And you may have swift steeds, but they're not fast enough to go that fast. Um, so it's not, they did not tweet out the danger that was coming their way. But everybody knew about it. And when I say everybody knew, everybody knew. Because this was big news. Um, but things had changed. Look at verse 1. On the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews, which would be Haman's followers, had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Came across the NIV, the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. I thought that was kind of, that's kind of a neat way of putting it. Tables have been turned, tide has shifted, things have changed. The enemies of the Jews are fearful and they are hopeless in their attempt to destroy the people of God. Uh, we see... Um, Verse 4, Mordecai was great in the king's palace. His fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. And it says, verse 5, the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. So the Jews defeated all the enemies of the Jews, and they did what they pleased with those who hated them. Uh, over the next 11 to 12 verses, it's a picture of full victory, complete victory. And on three different occasions in the course of verses 6 through 17 or 5 through 17, uh, the, the text says they did not lay a hand on the spoil or on the plunder. And so think back, rewind a little bit in biblical history. Um, we've seen this kind of thing play out before. Remember the Amalekites? Remember what Saul did in 1 Samuel, 7, 1 Samuel 15? Um, Samuel comes to him and he says, what do I hear? What do I see? And Saul says, well, I've kept back some of the uh, produce, some of the animals, so that we can offer them to you. And Samuel says... Stop talking. He says, he cuts him off. Um, and Saul was to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Incidentally, just as a little dot up to the side of the screen in your head right now, remember the first study we talked about that Haman, the Agagite, either means one, he's from a province that bears his name, or two, he is a descendant of Agag. And if he's a descendant of Agag, that makes him an Amalekite descendant from Esau, which would have made the blood even more messy here. Uh, either way, uh, the people are not aggressors. The Jews are not saying, now let me go take all this stuff that was theirs and make it mine and being vindictive and just over the top. Uh, they are destroying those people that are attempting to destroy them. Which brings us then to, 
I would say probably one of the least um, understood or studied parts of Esther. There are certain Old Testament stories or characters or books where we know a lot about them. And I'm guilty of knowing about certain sections and then certain sections is like, I don't Like we all know Job 1 and 2. And we know 38 through the end of, of the, the book. But uh, if you were to ask me, hey, let's sit down and study Job 8 through 12. <laughs> give me a couple days. Give me a day, please, at least. Because <laughs> I, I need to reread that and really study that. Because that was the section that I didn't study when I was a little kid very much, right? And that's it's kind of the same for us as well. So um, this is a section that I hadn't known much about. And the more I read about it, the more fascinated I was, which is what the Bible is supposed to do. It's supposed to fascinate us with the way things happen. A celebration was proclaimed to all the Jews, for all the Jews, throughout the entire empire. Let's read uh, some verses here in our final uh, 12 or 15 minutes. The Jews who were at Shusan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made a day of feast and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar, uh, with gladness and feasting as a holiday for sending presents to one another. Interesting. A holiday where you send presents to one another. Okay. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar or Adar as the days, and here's what you're celebrating, on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So uh, whether it be the Feast of Tabernacles, whether it be the Passover, whether it be this feast, which will be called Purim or Purim, um, they all have a meaning to it. And remember that these ancient people did not have a book to read from that was complete in the way that we have the book. And remember also that some of them couldn't read in the first place. Many of them couldn't read in the first place. So having things to memorize, stories to tell, songs to sing, were, have always been cultural ways of bringing a society together. And that's what's happening here. So this great celebration is going to happen. And then a summary of the events are outlined by Mordecai in verses 23 through 25. So the Jews accepted the custom, which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, which is the lot. Remember when they said, let's figure out what day we're going to uh, have the, the annihilation of the Jews? Rolled the dice, and here we go. This is the day it's going to be. And to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by the letter of the wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Which gives way to verses 26 through 32 and the Feast of Purim or the Feast of uh, Pur, uh, which Purim is a, it's a uh, Persian word, um, of origin, and it's one is singular and the other is plural uh, of it. Interesting. I never read this before, and I was, um, if we had a lot of time, we'd get into this, and if that was the subject of our study, we would get into this. But some facts about 
the feast of her. You may, you may have footnotes about this in your Bible. Maybe you've studied this before. But when ancient Jews and um, some modern Jews celebrate the feast of Purim, uh, any mention of Haman would bring a strong reaction from the Jews. Children, secular history records for us, would make these toys that were noisemakers, and any time Haman's name was read, they were sick and the people would shuffle their feet. And whenever Haman's name was read, they'd say, let him be accursed. So, so you can imagine what this would be like if you're um, a Jew in the 400s, 300s, 200s, 100s, in anticipation of the Messiah, um, that this feast was designed purposely to remember everything that Esther had done, everything that Mordecai had done, and everything that God ultimately had done for them. I think that's really uh, quite fantastic. I just, again, we talk about moments that we wish were on videotape or at least that were digital, digitally taped. Uh, I'd like to see that from 2,200 years ago or 2,400 years ago, what that feast would have, would have been like. Uh, the other thing is uh, at the Feast of Purim, as things developed, uh, ancient Jews would read Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, which I thought was kind of an interesting text for them to choose to read um, as, as recorded secularly. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16, is the account of the, guess who? Amalekites coming after God's people in an unprovoked fashion. Why they chose to read that is not recorded except in a secular history, but just kind of an interesting thing if, if there are connections between an Agagite and an Amalekite. All right, let's, let's get to the last chapter, and we'll spend all of about uh, two minutes here, and then we'll wrap up with some applications uh, that we will conclude with. Uh, chapter 10, King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Almost always the word tribute is the idea of a taxation, uh, which usually is not a, hey, let's celebrate, let's tax ourselves. Generally speaking, we as societies revolt against that and declare independence because, (laughs) stop taxing me. Uh, But a new tribute was imposed. Some have suggested, where did this idea come from? That it may have come from Mordecai. That Mordecai may have felt so indebted to the king And now he's a leader. He's kind of second in command. I use the term prime minister. Uh, Some would use that term to refer to what Mordecai was or what Haman initially was. Um, And that now that Jews are recognized as a viable people with the support of the throne, maybe there's going to be more tax money coming in. Maybe it's going to help out all those 127 provinces in the entire empire. I don't know whether that's the case or not. But somewhere the idea came up with of a, of a tribute that was, that was to be paid. Verse 2, Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So Mordecai's legacy was assured in Persian history. So in secular history of an empire that has been gone now some 2,000 years, um, Mordecai is remembered just as much as we remember Mordecai in biblical history. Kind of interesting. And he's not the only person 
You know, when we talk about evidences, when we talk about apologetics, when we talk about the idea of there being proof for a God, we see reference to other kings, other monarchs, other occasions that happened in the Bible that appear in secular history as well. So the, the notion that we're the crazy ones because we believe and take the Bible literally, no, we're the sane ones because we take the Bible literally and we believe these things actually happen. And then the third and final thing here is that Mordecai's work continued on as a blessing to future generations. Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, was great among the Jews, well received by the multitude of the brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. The word countrymen there is literally the word seed, uh, the idea of future generations. So what does all this mean? Well, we've had a lot of applications. We're going to conclude with three more. Again, a little bit of redundancy. Number one, God can take any difficulty. uh, I'm sorry, God can turn any difficulty into a day of celebration. We just have to trust him. Um, That's hard to do. That is really challenging to trust that God is going to see us through difficulties, but he can turn it into a day of celebration. And think about our lives are but for a moment a difficulty of 100 years, give or take a few, and then we get to spend an eternity with him, so he's going to really celebrate us in that sense. Secondly, uh, thinking about tonight's study, Remembering history is important, and so study of God's word is essential. Um, so that's why the entire Bible is important. And I, and I appreciate our approach here uh, that we're studying as much as we can of the Bible, including sections of Scripture that we may not be as familiar with as others. And the more we learn those things, the better we are um, And then the third and final thing is we get to choose the legacy we leave for our future generations. Chapter 10 is brief, and there's not much to it in terms of content, uh, at least on the surface. But that last verse, that he was a blessing to future generations, that he sought the good of his people in speaking peace, if that can be said at my funeral, that's a good thing. Uh, If that's the epitaph on my tombstone, you know, he sought good for people in a spiritual way, then that's a really good thing. So uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to teach Esther. Uh, Certainly, uh, there's more that could be said and can be said. Um, If you have feedback that you want me to add in, um, if we teach this again, or um, who knows, maybe I'll work up a sermon on Esther, subtitled, The Things I Missed. (laughs) And uh, we'll add all those things in there as to what, what we need to accomplish. But thank you all so very much for your kind attention. And again, uh, appreciate the parents. Uh, I know it's got to be a little bit difficult for you with younger people, but hopefully uh, between John and me and Jonathan, Jonathan will have no, no problem captivating the kids. Uh, uh, it's people like me that maybe can dawn on a little bit. Anyway, thank you all very much. Turn it over to our brother Brian and uh, for our invitation and then the invitation song.